This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Many of us have had experiences where, in fact, we have survived traumatic experiences. And today, diving into literature uh, that, ex- that explores survival at its basic form, both apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic, uh, that's an important place that we have to start. And so to begin our discussion, I wanted to ask uh, Carrie, uh, what if you could provide a basic explanation of apocalyptic versus post-apocalyptic genres of literature? Okay, I'll try. That's a, that's a tall order, but I have a couple of things to say about it. Well, first, apocalyptic fiction essentially comes out of the biblical tradition of the book of Revelation. And a lot of, if you do a little research on that, you'll see the last days and a lot of people talking about the end of the world. So literally the world ends with great wars and terrible, terrible images. And then after that's over, you have... Um, the post-apocalyptic version. So inside both of these, you have stories. The stories who were people who were going through the apocalypse, what happens to them, and then what happens when it's over. So these are offshoots from science fiction, which all come from the Gothic tradition, and that's something that I personally study and write a lot about. So I want to uh, read something to you. This is from probably one of the most famous Gothic scholars out there, Um, Fred Botling, he says, science fiction connected with the Gothic since Frankenstein presents new objects of terror and horror and strangely mutilated life forms and alien invaders from other and future worlds. With science fiction, however, there is significant divergence from Gothic strategies. Cultural anxieties in the present are no longer projected onto the past, but are relocated into the future. So this idea that the world, we have these anxieties going on right now, we're worried about climate change, we're worried about these other things, so we project that into different ways, so we call it, you know, we had the snow apocalypse, you know, the polar vortex apocalypse, we use this word, we throw it around, but we don't really know exactly what it means. Another scholar, um, Andrew Friedberg, says um, that This myth takes two forms, corresponding to the material and spiritual destruction of humanity by its own technology. So disaster, environmental disaster, promised the death of the human species, while future technology um, are sort of the idea of what might save us, perhaps. So you can do many readings of this kind of stuff. You can do feminist readings. You can do lots of things. And as a feminist scholar myself, I'll give you an example of a feminist reading. This one's by um, Barbara Creed. She, um, who's seen the movie Alien? Okay, does anybody remember what happens? The big scene, the John Hurt scene that happens. He pops out. The alien pops out, and it's pretty horrifying. So, um... Barbara Creed says, the apocalypse is heralded by the arrival of the alien slash woman. So the childbirth scene, she relates to childbirth, right? The alien's birth from that. So you get a lot of different things. So popular culture loves this stuff. Love it. So if you've ever seen the show Sleepy Hollow, the new show on Fox, right now the whole, po- the whole premise is the apocalypse coming and the first of the four writers is here. So... That's it. So I don't know if that helps, but that's a start. I think so. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, So are the genres equally popular right now as far as 
Well, I think that it depends, and I also think if you decide to separate that genre even further and you start talking about dystopian worlds, which happen in post-apocalyptic fiction, so Hunger Games fans, any Hunger Games? Okay, so after that, you know, you realize it's 13 districts, 13 original colonies, so, you know, you've got sort of like the U.S. after something bad happens, right? And so you've got that whole imagery going on there, and that world is what's called dystopian. So if you're a fan of George Orwell or 1984, his most famous book about that kind of thing, kind of shows you sort of this sort of tyrannical world. So a lot of this stuff happens with that hook to it. So it's hard to separate what is more fascinating. So people who are doomsday preppers, that kind of stuff, they might like the actual apocalyptic fiction, how do you live through the zombie apocalypse versus what happens next. So I think it's a personal thing. Thank you. Uh, do any of the panelists want to add uh, at this point like their favorite current kind of pop culture um, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic series? or form of media? I think Walking Dead is probably the, the most commonly well-liked one right now, whether the comic book or the TV show. I got kind of a sweet tooth for doomsday preppers, though. I don't know why. I wish I didn't. <laughs> Although it makes me feel a little bit more sane, which I guess is always good. Yeah. Thank you, Jason. You know, I think Hunger Games and the new Divergent series... Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen the Divergent series, but I think that has really captured people's imaginations. And it's not necessarily my favorite stuff, but but I think it really like speaks to kind of our our desire for a hero and and, and you know some of the other issues that post apocalyptic fiction brings up. Eric, uh, Naked and Alone. There's a Naked and Afraid. Naked, and, Naked afraid. and Afraid. Yeah, uh -huh. I've never seen it, and I have the um, uncomfortable experience of watching that with my mother-in-law. <laughs> Um, which is awesome, I might add. It's not necessarily apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic, but it does, in fact, do what a good apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic fiction does, which is strip mm -hmm. us down to our barest, quite literally, in that, you know, in that sense, and, uh, and make us function. So uh, I would add that to the list. Yeah. That's a great. If, no, if you haven't seen Naked and Afraid, let, go. Find it. Find the rerun. Watch it. It's great. Um, so, Jason... Don't watch it with your mother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'd like to shift it over to Jason and ask you, what do you think motivates this fascination with these different types of, you know, shows, literature? Because the fascination has been here for a long time. So it what has. is motivating the fascination with the genre? I think a lot of it comes from the idea that most human beings feel like at some point we're kind of living inauthentically to the way that we should live. Me, for example, uh, when it, I think about things that I can do for myself, I guess I can teach, kind of. I don't know. I can't cook, really. I can make like a frozen pizza. I can't get my own food. I would have no idea where clean drinking water is. Um, I, I don't know. Like when my wife leaves or something, I, I don't know how I even survive, really. And the set of skills that you need to be successful in today's world are things like you have to be able to get along well with other people, you have to be able to impress people. Important family connections are big. And a lot of people feel like that those are really inauthentic skills to living a completely holistic life. When it comes to the skills that would make one able to survive, able to hunt, fish, create crops, um, tend their own wounds, I can do none of these things. And if there ever was a, an apocalyptic situation, I'd probably be one of the first ones to go. 
And I think a lot of people feel like in order to capture some of their own ability to do things their own way, that they've lost that. I think some of it, too, comes from a sense of we're living inauthentically not only to our skill set, but also to our own morality, that in kind of the biblical tradition, the book of Revelation shows up. In the book of Revelations, God takes away the people that were good, and he leaves all the bad people behind. So there's that sense that there's an interest in it because we kind of want to be there to test ourselves, to see what we're really made of, but we also don't if you kind of follow that biblical tradition, because then that means that, well, you you kind of failed the test. Interesting. Um, I just want to throw out, if anybody has a question at any point, uh, you know, go ahead and throw your hand up, because we're willing to take those questions throughout um, and also at the end. Uh, so we've talked about some popular examples of, you know, this apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic genre, and what's driving us, and I think that that whole skill set, the whole idea of living authentically, uh, is really interesting, but what, like, Tish, I wanted to kind of turn it over to you and, and ask, you know, what messages are these authors, uh, what are they trying to convey to us who are living right now? So, like, what, Carrie brought in some issues. Uh, you know, she mentioned, you know, environmental, our future technology. Uh, she mentioned climate change. And I know that um, these are some areas that you've kind of focused in on within literature that these authors are trying to get us to take note of. Uh, do you want to share some of those with us? Sure. So, and, and Carrie really touched on this, that, I mean, from, you know, Mary Shelley's Last Man kind of sh and Frankenstein starting in, um, creating science fiction, really. Um, science fiction, and especially utopian and dystopian worlds and um, the post-apocalyptic tradition, really speak to our fears of what's happening now. So although these things are set in the future, usually, a crisis that happens that we are then living through, it really has to do with, with what the author wants to communicate about what's happening in our world right now. So like in the in the 50s right after world war 2 you saw a lot of post apocalyptic fiction that dealt with the holocaust and dealt with um atomic bombs we were afraid that we were going to you know destroy the world with nuclear war and so a lot of our fiction then either dealt with that immediate crisis what happens when that you know when the bomb goes off but then what happens after that when we are all suffering from radiation poisoning? How do we find food? How do we move through the world? And then currently, some of the fiction that I'm liking the most right now is dealing, again, with that kind of eco-crisis um, or dealing with capitalism run amok. So what happens when the corporations run everything? Um, Margaret Atwood has a series of three novels that really speak to this issue. Um, that's fantastic, starting with Oryx and Crake, and just finished up this year with Mad Adam, which we have in the library, if you're interested. Um, and so it's those fears that I think writers are, are speaking to so that they can bring awareness to these issues. It's not just make-believe. It's, no, this is happening right now, and, you know, what's going to happen to us if we don't pay attention to it? Great. Thank you. Um, so... I, I like how you brought in fear and the idea that fear is a huge motivator and not just in this, uh, you know, genre of literature, but, you know, in our culture, fear is used to get people to take action across the board, whether it's just, uh, you know, buying certain products, um, joining certain gyms. Uh, but I think that fear of not being able to 
continue on. Um, the literature offers us, you know, ways that we can see, okay, even though, you know, Jason talked about, like, I would die. You know, I always think that I would die. If I was on Walking Dead, I wouldn't be there when Brick first woke up. You know, like, I'd already be dead. Um, you know, we always think that. But I think that this, the, the draw to the genre is that it's giving us ways that we could actually rise above and become, um, you know, kind of, for the Walking Dead fans, you know, the Glenn, you know, the pizza man who, you know, moves on. Um, but, you know, so, Eric, I want to kind of open up the door to, you know, what's the, you know, kind of what's the promise in, in the literature, in the genre? Like, what ways do the authors want to rebuild the society? In what ways do they show us that it, it can be rebuilt or maybe it can't? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that they do offer a, a, a solution, per se, um, and as you're talking about the idea of fear, I'm thinking about McCarthy's The Road. Um, Pewitts are winning for a good reason. And uh, mm. uh, This morning, I was standing at the overpass on the tri-state coming here, and uh, just pumping gas, thinking about like this moment, and kind of looking at the, at the world uh, around me. And um, I happened to think about um, McCarthy and something that he said about why this book came to be, and he was in El Paso, Texas some number of years ago. And um, I, I can't remember the exact of the story, um, but he was talking about um, being standing in this hotel room and his son, who was just past the age of being a toddler, was behind him sleeping. And uh, he, McCarthy, that has walked over to the window and looked out and just had this image come to him of the world, of the world burning. And um, it's a popular image that we see, um, but I, I don't think he was infatuated with the idea of the burning of it so much as uh, what would happen in the aftermath of that and introduced the idea of fear. The significance of his son being there introduced the idea of fear. And um, recently, having had a child of my own, I had never known f fear per se um, until I had until I had a child. And um, so that image of the world burning is something that, that he mentions, and it, it's stuck in my mind. So as I'm standing on this overpass, looking around at the world around me, and what these writers are asking us to do is examine the world around us, um, examine it, and think about it, so we don't have to burn this world. Um, the work <laughs> we might be getting there, but um, so I was looking around this gas station, and there's a guy standing there in Mercedes, and he's pumping gas. And there's another guy who's walking over McDonald's, and he has an empty gas can. Uh, he's asking people; he barely speaks English, and he's asking other people to fill the gas can for him. And there's me standing there, and who knows what they thought of me? I'm sharply good-looking, I imagine, right? But um, so I'm standing there, kind of taking all this in, and I'm thinking about what this, what these texts do. All of them, any of the books that are sitting on this table or aren't sitting on this table. Um, and then what they do is they give us an opportunity to strip away the Mercedes, to, to strip away how we're dressed, to strip away what we're driving, where we are, strip away our language and boil us down to the basics of what we are. Um, and we're able to reveal ourselves to what we truly are. Um, and it affords us the opportunity, a post-apocalyptic world affords characters and us the opportunity to be what we are, down to, with, without any pretense, um, down to stupidity, cruelty, racism, hope, beauty, despair, any of those things. And um, I think the idea of, of all these books is so that we can learn from them and not repeat th these mistakes that they're saying or that we're making. Um, yeah. Well, I think the writers strip away, like, so, for instance, the guy in the Mercedes. If we strip away his, uh, his, his cultural status, whatever it may be, and that's what I was thinking about as I was standing there. I'm thinking about, like, what, 
what kind of man is he? And um, I tend to be the guy who resents the guy in the Mercedes for whatever my own reason is, right? But there'll be other people who look at him and covet what he has. There'll be other people who are indifferent to what he has. But um, So it, it boils him down to he's no longer his role in this society. He just happens to be a man or a woman happens to be a woman, and you're, you're simply there and you're functioning. Um, and as such, then you become what you truly are, and that's what these texts do is they let you function separate of all of this culture that we have built. And I think what the authors of these, they don't necessarily offer an idea for how we might rebuild it and how we might live. I think it's more of the other way around. They say, don't do this because the world, there's a book, The Earth Abides, it's out there, the world, which means it will continue. The earth will continue without us if we don't change what we do. And um, in a lot of these books, like I have a copy of I Am Legend sitting here, and the way this text ends, um, spoiler, sorry, you'll forget by the time you get there. Uh, but so the way this text ends is it's a last man on earth sort of idea, and the way it ends is there's a whole other society of beings who is waiting for him to die so they can move on with their own folly. Um, and it will go on without us, so we need to be, not be so full of ourselves and, uh, and function as such. And so, answer your question? Yeah. yeah? Can I open that question up to um, our other panelists? You know, if you want to provide some of your perspective on, you know, rebuilding society, you know, that kind of, you know, can spark from what Eric said about stripping away and getting down to, you know, boil down to the basics, you know, if you agree, disagree, or your perspective. Well, I think World War Z does that in the way where the sort of equity happens, where, you know, the person who has, you know, advanced degrees has to learn how to do rebuilding work. So, you know, I think Max Brooks illustrates it that way. I think that with regard to Cormac McCarthy and, and his child, in a lot of ways the child is kind of symbolic for stewardship of the future in, in any kind of a post-apocalyptic situation. Zombies, especially if you've seen the remake of Dawn of the Dead, when the baby comes out and it's a zombie baby, that's kind of like saying, well, you can try to rebuild, but we know in the end that the world is going to be pretty screwed up, that you can never really go back to the way that things were before. So... Yeah. Anytime I use these texts in, in a classroom, I always kind of start with a question, like, are these texts of hope or are they texts of despair? Mm. And I'm not a big fan of the either-or question. There's all kinds of things they can be, but to go to the polars on there, are they texts of hope or are they texts of despair? And it's always, depending upon the day, today is a hopeful day. So there's always a part of me that wants them to be texts of hope, right, um, that we can learn from our, our ways and in, in, in change. And um, um, so... Hope. Hope is always a big function in these texts. To go back to your original question of how do authors um, try to rebuild the world, and I think hope is hope is therein. So. Definitely, and with the end of the road, I think that one definitely gets a feeling of hope through the end of it. Right, because without that hope, I don't know why we would read these. You know, like if we can't remake and rebuild and be better, then why would we... Why would we even bother reading? One of my favorite um, post-apocalyptic novels is Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. And she is a dark, dark lady. She writes some really dark stuff. But I think at the end, it always comes back to this idea of community and building a better society and that we can do that. We just have to put the work in to do it. Well, I want to read you a little bit from a very old post-apocalyptic novel, and I think it fits in. It's hopeful. Have you, any of you, my readers, observed the ruins of an anthill immediately after its destruction? At first, it appears entirely deserted of its former inhabitants. In a little time, you see an ant struggling through the upturned mold. They reappear by twos and threes, running hither and thither in search of their lost companions. Such were we upon the earth, wandering aghast at the effects of pestilence. Our empty inhabitants remained, 
but the dwellers were gathered in the shades of the tomb. So if we say we're like the earth, the earth will continue just like the ants will continue. We might have lost something, but we will come back again. So I think that that, I think there is a hope in these texts. If it were not, I don't think we would read them. Because if they were just sad, we would probably get bored and move on. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, I once heard that um, that hope is the antithesis to doubt. And, uh, you know, a lot of survival and being able to kind of, uh, you know, live through the apocalypse and into that post-apocalyptic time is, is about, you know, can I do it? Will I be able to do it? And if they didn't offer the hope, then, you know, what would we do with the doubt? Um, so it kind of has to be met with something. Uh, an interesting um, thing that... I was I was thinking about as I kind of came to this panel was the idea that you know it all is examining the world right you know the end of the world and how will the world be, be rebuilt and how will society be rebuilt and um, I think it was Tish that kind of touched upon the idea that we've experienced um, like you know post Holocaust post nuclear war post all these eras and what about as individuals you know how do these texts um, and these series uh, teach individuals to handle trauma uh, in their lives. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you always think, I'm going to come out of this apocalyptic, you know, event the same as I went into it. But is that a reality? Do you have to come out the same, or do we rebuild in a different way? Does that make sense? Anybody want to? Um, well, okay, so the thing that comes to mind for me is, um, has anyone watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yes. Okay, so a few of you. So every season ends with an apocalypse, and, she, and, and the whole point is that Buffy is going to avoid this apocalypse. She's going to fight against this apocalypse with her friends. But uh, the end of season two, she has to kill her boyfriend. And, and that, just that action is, is an apocalypse. She saves the world, but her, she has her own personal crisis, her own personal apocalypse, which we all have had, either breakups, you know, people dying. So being able to come back after that and to, to find yourself, to find your friends, I think, like for me, that's what makes that show amazing is that I watch these things happen to a character, these apocalypses, and they teach me somehow how to find strength with my friends, with my family, they, they teach us, I think, how to deal with the crises, the crises that happen in our own lives and the, and the messes that we make. So we can take those lessons. And even though they're fictional, they still feel real, you know, when we're watching or reading. And somehow that makes us more capable later on. I think in a lot of ways the greatest skill that people normally say is important about dealing with a crisis, whether it's a post-apocalyptic world or whether it's being your toilet overflowing at 3 o'clock in the morning is just kind of how well you walk through the fire. Mm -hmm. And that's something that in a world where everything is turned upside down, that that's remaining in, in absolute paramount importance. Thank you. I think it begs the larger question of religion or God, however you'd like to look at it. And, um, I'm thinking, based on what you just got done saying, I, a lot of what goes on in these books is um, gets down to the idea of how are we behaving when we know no one is watching, how are we behaving when we know someone is watching. And um, there's, a, there's a text, um, Ron Keery Jr., um, just a number a few years ago put out, um, 
Everything Matters. And then there's a, a second one, um, God is Dead, which, of course, is a controversial title, which he's doing it so you pick it up and read it, but it's truly not meant to be blasphemous. Um, it's really not. It's, it's, a, it's an allusion to Nietzsche um, from, uh, from the gay science, particularly from the uh, parable of the madman. And the full quote is, God is dead, God remains dead, and how have we, um, how, how have we killed him? How should we comfort ourselves, murderers of all murderers? And the basic premise of the book is he, he wants to take this idea of God and religion and, and remove it, truly not blasphemously, but just to say, okay, we can end the argument about he's real, he's not real, um, it's real, she's real, however you want to look at that, and say it, it existed, but for whatever reason, it no longer does. Um, so put that, take that away from humanity, strip it away, and now we're going to see what humanity does in its absence. And um, so it's a, it's a book of short stories that follows um, just basically portraits of how people behave in the vacuum of what's created. Um, and it kind of goes through and it follows a group of teenagers and what would they go and they rob liquor stores and they just drink themselves into oblivion. Um, it goes and it follows priests. Some they're, they're priests who end up committing suicide. They're, they're all these, these horrible things that are going on. And, um, and it all goes back to the idea of how do we behave when we know nobody is watching. And it gets back to the idea of the personal apocalypse. And... Um, mm-hmm. You know, the world doesn't have to end in, in fire or in um, some kind of cataclysmic event for it to be a, a post-apocalyptic text. It has to have something happen to where it absolutely alters the way you move forward um, from the way you woke up that morning, you know. So. Absolutely. That's exactly what um, you all touched upon. Uh, kind of what I was glimpsing into is that idea of that personal um, you know, struggle in order to survive, even just our day-to-day instances. And I think that it ties back to what many of you have touched upon, like the authentic, living authentically to our morals, like Jason said, and, um, and, you know, the crises that are constantly happening around us, they just seem to cycle. Uh, I think at this time it might be a good idea to um, hopefully you have some questions stirring in your minds and uh, you can present them to us. Uh, is there anyone that has a particular question for either an individual panelist or for the panel as a whole? Dig deep. No? All right. Yeah. Let me. I'll repeat that. Are you going? Uh, he, you asked geographically speaking, uh, where do you foresee a post-apocalyptic event happening? Student union. Um, <laughs> very good question. Very geographically minded, if I might say. Um, if I had to put money on it, I'd probably go with the RLC. The RLC is a place that was formerly in the Soviet Union. It's between Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan today. Um, it was the fifth largest sea. Don't quote me on that, being a bad geography teacher. And it's essentially now dried up. And what was interesting about it was because it was an island that was developing in the middle of the sea, the Soviet Union did a whole mess of weapons testing on the island because it wasn't on maps. And anthrax testing, a couple of different plagues. So there were all these mutant animals that were coming out of the island. And then sometime in the last 10 years or so, the island, as the sea began to continue to to dry up, it was no longer an island. It was an isthmus. So it was connected to the mainland. Apparently there were a couple of different things where soldiers had to go in and kill all these mutant animals. So not making this up. The RLC, it's called A R A L S E A. 
Yeah, it was the island is called Valzraj Dania Island, which is Rebirth yeah, Island. Yeah. It's interesting stuff apparently happened there. Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, as a speech teacher, not a lot of science. Actually, to to piggyback on what he's saying, I came across an article in in Wired Magazine, which is not the most academic of sources, I get it, but um, that prompted me to go dig around in other places, and there's this... uh, You can go look it up in your own time if you feel like being terrified this afternoon. Um, It's a doomsday machine, the Soviet death hand, and uh, when you look at the image in the article, like, it's it's a hand, and there's this mushroom cloud coming out of it, and it's just this this sort of leftover Cold War um, machine that's... Pointed has if if everyone and who can make decisions in Russia happens to be ended, it, it will trigger automatically and just launch everything like here. Go look that one up. And the problem with it is why that article even became uh, evident, why it came to light was that there's fears that is that when it was built, um, seismic tremors might set it off. So we've got that going for us. Yeah, go look it up. Soviet death hand. So I agree with Russia. I'm with you. Uh, I should backtrack also and say that I, for any commentary about Russia, I'm sure we have our own version of that machine too. So I'm not trying to cast stones outward. You know, I'm, I'm sure we have our own version. You know. Well, another geographical area that I, I read recently um, in the uh, very academic Rolling Stone magazine um, <laughs> that I read about Australia actually being um, sort of ranched to death. There's so much cattle there, and, you know, they're using that space to, you know, for food production, and it's actually they're suffering a lot of drought and different things that are happening there. And there were some really shocking images about that, about the ranchers and the dying, you know, animals and all the things that are going on there. And I actually have a friend who lives there, and uh, the drought is getting worse, and they have wildfires worse than what we have in California. And so, I mean, so I think the environmental aspect of it um, is also there too. So if you want to be extra scared, you can look that one up too. Um, I could say even maybe here, it could start here. So there's this science fiction writer that I really like who is a microbiologist at, I think, Kenyon University. And her newest novel, which I haven't read yet, is about, um, I think, a parasite that takes over the brain. But um, also talking to, I think, one of our, one of the instructors here that teaches microbiology, like the bacteria 
um, and parasites that we, you know, are kind of destroying with our antibacterial soaps and creams and the hormone stuff that is getting into our water systems, like all of that is causing real problems, like real crises at hospitals with staph infections and, and bacteria that we can't control. And I think, you know, something really close to home, it's not as, I don't know, kind of as glamorous or exciting as like nuclear war, but uh, it's still really scary. What if this spreads? I mean, it's kind of like the zombie, you know, pandemic. I love it. I'm super scared now. <laughs> uh, so, uh, any other questions? Is that okay, gentlemen? Yes, the plan. Okay, so it was a question that Mars stopped turning. Is that what happened? Okay. Okay. Um, and then is the question, is that an indicator of the end times? Or is it kind of scientific? What is the scientific role in, you know, just what is science? I think this is a great question. You know, what does science offer to this genre? You know, how, you know, what is what role does science play in apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, you know, literature? It, it plays a huge role. I mean, watch um, The Night of the Living Dead. I mean, that's a scary zombie movie, even though it's old. I would say that's the scariest one. But you see the technology sort of in the film where it starts out with a radio, and then later on the, the group finds a television, and they watch television, which tells them that this fallout may have created this disease that may have, you know, so it's like almost like we created our own destruction. And I think a lot of these writers, especially the writers I'm most familiar with, with, deal with science, you know, in a way where it kind of runs rampant and we don't know how to control it. So if you're a science fiction fan, if you watch the show, the new one, not the 70s one, the new Battlestar Galactica, which is actually good, um, it's all about science, you know, and we can create our own machines to do, our, to do the work that we don't want to do, but the machines can eventually evolve and then they can, you know, kill us. <laughs> so this whole idea is is there and science um, is a part of it. And I don't think we should be afraid of science. That's not my point. But I'm just saying that you kind of have to just be understanding that the writers are playing with that idea. Who runs the science? You know, who's in charge of it? You know, how do we know they're doing a good job? Those kinds of questions are the ones that are in these, on some of these texts. I think the long-term nature of those kinds of things happening to us, I don't think we need to worry about them. I, I think we're going to take care of ourselves before the spinning of Mars gets to us, you know, and not, not to remotely even belittle the question. It's a great question. But, um, I, you know, I, I'm thinking about, like, go, go watch Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot and, and mm -hmm. think about the ideas he talks about in there. And um, I, I'm not, you know, the, the amount of time, the deep amount of time it would take for those, such events to happen, I don't even know that we're capable of understanding. And, uh, so I think it becomes a matter of what do we do with our time, which is what a lot of the texts, um, these texts, in fact, talk about. This other book, um, Ryan Curie Jr.'s uh, Everything Matters, the premise of the book is there's a child who's born with, a, with an understanding that he has 36 years to live. Not only he does, but everyone on the planet has 36 years to die, and he has that knowledge from his birth. So then the question becomes, you know you have this finite amount of time, so what do you do with that time? And how do you spend it? And um, do you spend it being petty and stupid and cruel, or do you spend it doing something worthwhile? 
T.S. Eliot begged the question in the 20s with the wasteland, with the, you know, the declining of, uh, of art and beauty in, uh, in, in culture, at least the way he saw it, and, um, and trying to figure out what are we going to do with our time, how are we going to make a difference. So, um, so science, of course, it's huge, and I don't, I don't understand, I won't pretend to, but I, what I do understand of it is that it's so far away from being real that um, we need to get some, some things straight before we worry about the meteors coming for us. You know, so... <laughs> And you reminded me with your question about Mars is that uh, when the there was an earthquake, I think 4.2, that hit uh, Old Faithful out at Yellowstone. And if you've seen the movie 2012, you know that that plays a huge role. And so um, my husband and I make fun of the movie 2012 a lot, you know, running from airplanes and cracking roads and stuff like that. Um, if only we all had that speed. Uh, but, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, we key in on those, on those scientific things that kind of reinforce our drive toward this type of uh, literature and, and this genre in general. Um, are, is there another question? Did you have a different question? They're, they're on board. We'll try. One word, Illuminati. You guys familiar with You mean like from the Da Vinci Code? Uh, I didn't watch that. Oh, well, then I don't know. It's, uh, it's a little off topic. It's about how the world's going to change, new world order. It's a little off topic. I just thought if any of you guys have opinions, I'd like to hear it. Any of the panelists have opinions on Illuminati? No expertise. Uh, no. Right? Yeah. Luminal. <laughs> That's the thing with the pyramid in the eye, right? I, yeah, I don't really know enough about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Good question. Sorry, we don't have it. Did you have a question? Sorry. Well, I think it's Well, I want to just kind of say one thing. I had my students write a, a small essay about preparation and if we could ever be prepared for, you know, for these kinds of events. So we looked at the um, FEMA website and the CDC website and we looked at all the things we were supposed to have and it, it became very apparent very quickly that no one can be prepared for, for all these events for long term. You could be prepared for maybe three days, but if you had to actually collect everything and move quickly, that could be a big problem. So I think that the, the deeper issue in your question is one that might be more sociological in the fact that, you know, this idea of individuals and communities. So, you know, if we think of ourselves, the doomsday preppers, so I've got my own bunker in my yard, but I'm not going to let Eric come over. So he's done, right? So he can't come. He can't come over my bunker, you know. But but maybe you know I like Eva, so I let her come over, you know. So this idea of individual and community kind of thing, I think that's kind of might be at the core of your issue I, or your question. I don't know how else we can really talk about it. I I know that. Um, there's a lot of sociological theory um, out there on it. My partner's a sociologist, so he tells me. So I can't give you a, an authority. I know one. 
So I don't know if that helps. I know Eric wants to say something. Well, I think physically preparing is kind I'll of... I'll let you talk, but you can't come over. Yeah, I'm coming over. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to sit in your basement and eat tuna. For like, yeah, my mom still has tuna fish in her basement from Y2K. Like, I, I don't want to sit in the dark with my mom and eat tuna fish. Like, if, you know what I mean? Like, if, should this end? Like, that's not what I want. So I think maybe physically preparing is it's something that we sort of focus on as we run around and, and sort of squander our time doing that, which maybe we're maybe better off preparing through conversation and communication with one another and culturally coming to some understandings to, to, to avoidance. Um, so how much, how many cans of beans and how many bullets can you save to where they're not going to do you any good anyway? What are you going to do with them? You know? So I, I think prevention is a better, not only prevention, we're going to try to end any one apocalypse or another, but like, um, Hope. Let's push for hope and, and, uh, and communication, and that, that's the best prevention we can really do, I suppose. It always strikes me as being, yeah, kind of piggybacking off of Eric, is how strange it is that doomsday preppers will stockpile bullets when bullets actually have an expiration date. Like, they will, but you can't store them for 50 years and then try to use them, and they'll still be good because they won't. When most people, what they would probably die of in an apocalypse situation is probably water is you can live for three weeks without food, but three days without water and you're done. So, But water is another tricky thing to store, too, because it's really heavy. And I don't really get the physics of how this works, but apparently if water is stagnant, that's really bad, even if it's just, like, fresh water. I, I don't know. So it's probably the best thing to, to do in, in a situation like that would just be mentally flexible. Absolutely. Anything to add, Tish? Um, I feel like that's been really good. Well, it's right. awesome. Any other questions? We have six minutes. Lay it on us. <laughs> oh, well, we played those early. Oh, you did? Yeah. We could always do it at the end, do another a yeah, run well, through. Absolutely. Send people off. Chicago is a death trap if an apocalypse is to happen. So, yes, uh, Chicago is a death trap if an apocalypse were to happen. So what do you think, uh, what's the feedback on uh, preparation or what we can expect if um, a food shortage, you know, what's to occur, occur um, famine? Just basically my question is more pointed on Chicago. Well, why is it a death trap? Because we get all of our imports, all of our food shipped to Chicago. So, like, we rely on other sources. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not, you know, we have, yes, corn, but we don't have that many. Um, we're, we're very dependent, a very dependent city. Oh, that brings up, That's I think, like I just reading about apocalypse and post-apocalyptic uh, kind of tropes, that the urban versus rural. So, I mean, we do have things in the city that I think help us prepare. So we're close to communities, which could be good or bad. We've got, um, so we've had a lot of resources as far as people, but you're right. We don't have sources of of food. We can't like farm our own land, um, which I think is why so many of the, the post-apocalyptic novels that take place well after you have people journeying out to find, it's like the, it's like the wild west. You're like you're trying to find space for you and yours um, and to protect it. So it's almost kind of harkens back to this, like, the idea of a Western. Um, so I think that's interesting. Like, I, I don't have an answer for, for what we would do. I mean, I think in communities like this, you would start foraging. So knowing, like, the, the local wild plants that are around would be an excellent start. Um, and then also actually trusting your neighbors. I think, you know, something that comes up in 
uh, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler is that how they survive is because they they find people that they can rely on so they can watch each other's backs. They each bring something to the group that the others can't bring. And so I think finding those people that you know you can rely on and count on, it would be a huge part of surviving an apocalypse in Chicago. I think we'd probably be up the creek pretty quickly. Even thinking about, well, I would go outside and I would do some hunting. There's there's not enough game anywhere around here to, to help out even a small fraction of the people that are around here. I mean, realistically, if if one was going to truly live in a world of autarky, a world where there's no trade at all, where you do everything for yourself, it's even hard to do it in, like, rural Alaska. It's, it's just, we have changed our environment so much that I don't know that it's really possible anymore. I, I don't know, I guess, stock up on food beforehand. They sell those, like, freeze-dried things. Those are probably good. <laughs> MRE. I'm totally, I'm a goner, you can tell. <laughs> Look at you. Um, you'll be always smiling, but, but I'm thinking, you know, uh, so what you suggest, uh, we just have a good sense of humor and just knowing that we're not going to survive because from that's what you're saying, we don't have skills to survive, but we have to have a hope. But are you realistically think we can survive or not? Me? Yes. Well, if you ask a carpenter how to fix the world's problems, not Jeff Carpenter, but um, a carpenter will probably say we need to build things. If you ask a legislator, they'll probably say we need to pass laws. I'm a teacher, so I would probably say that the best way to ensure survival would be to get educated, So, which is possible, but realistically being educated about it means accepting the fact that if there were breaks in our supply chain for food that we would have problems very quickly. I think H.G. Wells, 1920, um, there's a quote in the wall downstairs. Um, it's kind of, every once in a while I forget that they're there. They're just so commonplace. Every once in a while I stop and actually see one. This morning I caught this human history becomes more and more a race between education and catastrophe. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's important. Um, so I think about events that have actually occurred. Think about Hurricane Katrina and look at how people behaved in that aftermath um, are still behaving in that aftermath um, so I, I think a lot of it comes down to what's your what's your faith in humanity so when things go bad are we going to turn to each other for help or are we going to turn on each other and uh, we have plenty of events that, that suggest both in our in our history so depends on the day thank you so much I know I myself was looking forward to this panel um, immensely uh, just because there's such a wealth of knowledge uh, about literature and I think that you know uh, some really great points have been brought up today about so many different issues and so uh, you know I hope as audience members you know coming from a, a speech standpoint you know I would think as audience members you take away what you can best use and um, you know whether it relates to you know eco crisis capitalism climate change um, you know the skills to survive um, you know all of our future technology, uh, you know, whether you just go and watch Naked and Afraid. I mean, that's a plus. Um, but, you know, I think that um, my takeaway is that, you know, the idea of examining uh, the world around us and being aware of the intricacies that are all working together and how much of a part I play um, and I impact others around me and, um, and, and 
I think the word hope, what a great thing to walk away with. Um, you know, my hope is that you grasp onto that and, um, and leave the fear here, uh, I guess. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, us. thank you to the panel members. You did a great job. Thank you to Troy for organizing and having us. And did you want to wrap up, or is that it? All right, great. Thank Have you, everybody. Have a great day, you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.